as we begin a new series in Kingdom Living, we're going to be looking at Romans 12 through 15 over the next three or four weeks and taking a big view of a passages that could go very deep and very long, but we're going to take a, a big view of it about how Paul deals with righteousness and what righteousness looks like, how our doctrine leads to duty, how what he has said up to this point addresses how we are to believe. Now in chapter 12, he's going to talk about how we are to behave. And you'll see in your notes where Paul talks about righteousness, and that's a theme of the book of Romans, the unrighteousness of fallen man, the righteousness given by God as a free gift, the righteousness rejected by the Jews, and righteousness lived out by the redeemed. How do we live out as the redeemed people of God, righteousness. How do we walk in a godly way? How do we live out in such a way that the world sees in us Christ's likeness? And so if you've looked at Romans chapter 12 and, and you see how it begins, it begins with therefore. Now, when I was in college, I always learned when you see therefore, you ask, what's it there for? And the reason it's there is to tell you Paul is now applying everything he has said in the first 11 chapters. Here's how faith and righteousness and grace work themselves out in our lives. In other words, it's not just making a decision and then just going about your business. It is how it lives out in our lives. Someone has said that you cannot separate Paul's ethical imperatives from its doctrinal indicatives. The imperatives and the indicatives of the book of Romans are key that they are not separated. There's a declaration of the gospel. That's the first thing he does. But then there are the demands of the gospel. And so Paul has declared what the gospel is. It is an act of faith. It is the grace of God. It is toward those who are ungodly and unrighteous, which is all of us. But that behavior that we are now to study and look at and to apply demands a power. And it demands boundaries. It needs boundaries. So, sometimes people take grace and they say, well, now that I've been saved by grace because I can't be saved by keeping the law, then I can live however I want to. That person has never read the Bible. Grace does not mean I get to live however I want to. Grace means I respond correctly to what God has done for me. And so behavior has boundaries. Now those boundaries we know we can't live up to without the power of God. I mean, just look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, we blow one or two or all of those. You blow one, you blow them all. The only way that you can live the life that God demands is by the grace of God and by the boundaries of God has set these rails, these parameters to say, if you want to know what godly living looks like, you're not going to have to guess about it. You're not going to have to figure it out. You're not going to have to go, I wonder what that means in 2018. Does it mean something different than it meant at the time of Paul? He's giving us the fact that biblical salvation demands a moral response. 
and that there are Christian ethics, how we act in this world, how we live in this world. And it all centers around a word that we know a lot about, but we don't see much of, and that's the word character. Now, all of us know characters, people that are just, they're characters. But this is about character, about who you are inside, what you are when you're squeezed, when life's pressure comes on you, the implications and the applications of the gospel that are evident in our lives. Now, back in the days of the Jesus movement, there was a song that came out and there was a statement that was used a lot that said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were arrested, if they put handcuffs on you today and threw you in jail and tomorrow you stood before a judge, would there be enough evidence to convict you that you are in fact a Christian? I would dare say for the whatever that percent is of people that say they're evangelicals and say they're Christians in America, if some people say that's as high as 80%. I think whoever did that survey was smoking weed. <laughs> there ain't no way. There's no way. I mean, if 80% of people in America were Christians, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now. And the reason that we're in the mess we're in is if they say they are, they certainly aren't living the life that would say to the other percentage, you need what I've got. You need the life that I have. And so it begins with surrender. Therefore, I urge you, I appeal to you, I beg you, I admonish you by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, the unmerited favor of God, to live a life of surrender. Paul is not making a suggestion. He is pleading and begging that the church would be an example of a surrendered life, that people would see in us the Christ-likeness that Jesus has equipped us to do by his teachings and by the coming of his Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is doing, he's not asking for a response of legalism he is asking for a response of love. Now, there are churches that have the, you know, they're, they're just full of legalism. They've got the, the nasty nine and the filthy five and the, you know, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. I mean, they, they've got those rules. And if you obey their rules, you're a good Christian. There's nothing about rules in the Christian life. It's about relationship. And if I'm in relationship with Christ, and if I'm surrendered to Christ, then I want my relationship to be pleasing to him. I don't want to hurt him by how I'm relating to him or how I'm relating to anybody else. I want to be consistent in the life that he has called me to live. The, the reason that we see so much sin so evident among the body of Christ is because we have a shallow, superficial view of the cross. If we ever saw what our sin did to Jesus at the cross, we would raise our understanding of what God asked of us. John Calvin said, Man will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey Him with sufficient zeal 
until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. Now here we are. If we are saved, if we know Christ, here's some things that we know. We, we've been justified by his grace. The word justified or justification means just as is, is if I had never sinned. Well, I know I've sinned. But to be justified by God means God looks at me through the blood of Jesus and just as if I've never sinned. I'm justified by his grace. I'm not justified because I'm a good guy. I am a good guy. Don't ask my kids, but I am a good guy. But, but I'm not justified because I'm a good guy. I, I'm not justified by my works. I'm justified by his grace, which means I need to look and act a different way if I'm a justified person. I'm redeemed from the bondage of sin. I was in a sin debt that I could not pay. And there was no way I could get out of that sin debt. I was in bondage to it. But I've been redeemed, purchased, bought out of sin. Not just, hey, I told a lie when I was five years old, but I've been a pretty good person. Listen, Paul is never saying, compare yourself to anybody else. Paul is saying, we compare ourselves to who Christ is and realize how far off we were that it took God sending his son to die so that I could be redeemed. It wasn't about going and writing a check to a bail bondsman. It was about God redeeming us with the only thing that could redeem us, and that was the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm saved from the wrath of God. I've been saved. God's wrath is on sin. And so what God did is he took that wrath that I deserved and he poured it out on his son at one time in one place for all time and for all people to say, I'm giving my son what I should be giving you. Now that ought to step our game up a little bit. I'm doing to my son what I have every right to do to you as a sinner because of the way that you've acted toward me. And God said, I'll pour it all out on my son. And the son said, I'll freely receive it because of his love. I've been adopted into the family of God. I have a family wherever I go in the world. I can go anywhere in the world and I can find family members. Amen. Why? Because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. I can walk through an airport. I can be in another church. I can be in another country. And I can find people who are believers and like-minded because we agree on something. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I've been adopted in a family. I've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. You see, the problem is some people think if I'm good enough, I'm really not in the kingdom of darkness how good do you have to be? I mean, where's the measuring scale? You can't be good enough. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God, by his grace, has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and he's put us into the kingdom of light. So, in light of all of that, Paul says, give yourselves to God. Be a living sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice acceptable to God. Our sacrifice is the surrender of ourselves 
to God. Present your bodies. Present your bodies. I am to give my body, which means everything that I am, my heart, my mind, my soul, my emotions, my feelings, my thoughts, my will. I'm to present my body as a living sacrifice to God. I'm to be a walking witness of the grace of God and the righteousness of God. And I am to be a living testimony. Now, do we blow it? Yes. Do you wallow in it? No. You claim what God has done for you. And the problem with a living sacrifice is we keep crawling off the altar. I've watched people through the years that refresh here. They'll come to the altar and they'll make a decision. They'll, they'll cry and then they'll go out and three months later you can't find them in church anywhere. You know why? Because they got off the altar. When you get off the altar, you think it's your life to live the way you want to. When you're at the altar, it's his life to do with what he wills. And so the living sacrifice, I'm to give everything that I am to God, and I'm to be on the altar. Now, here's the difference. In the Old Testament, you just brought an unblemished animal, or you brought an offering. And if you brought an animal as a sacrifice, then that animal was killed once I mean and it died and then that covered but in the New Testament we bring to God our living worship our living of the life of Christ we bring that to God and we bring it to him on a daily basis I don't have to crawl off the altar I can stay at the altar and when I do it is acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. Now one translation says it's reasonable. Now let me ask you something. If you were in Afghanistan today and a fellow soldier stepped in front and took a bullet that was intended for you and he died and you lived, would you owe it to that soldier to honor his death on your behalf? This way means yes. Would you owe it? I mean, every breath you take, would you understand that I am breathing because he's not? I'm breathing because he gave his life for me. Why is it then that as the body of Christ, as the people of God, that we come up with this idea that Christ died for me, I can do whatever I want to do? It seems reasonable, Paul says, that in light of the righteousness of God and our unrighteousness, it just seems a reasonable request of God that we be a living sacrifice. And there are a couple of things here. First of all, it is a proper response to grace. If I'm living as a living sacrifice, if I'm choosing to be a witness for Christ, it is a proper response to the grace that I've been given. Secondly, it's a renewed way of thinking because in this world, <laughs> I'm looking out for number one. It's just me and mine. Everything about this world and even about the church today, the church, the church in America today would not be recognized as a New Testament church because the church in America today is about preferences. 
It's about opinions. It's about what I like and what I don't like, what I want and what I don't want. Do you do this for me? Do you do that for me? Have you scratched my back today? Have you made me feel good? That's not the purpose of the church. Take a Benadryl, you'll feel better. I mean, that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to be a living witness of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ in us, not just when we're at church, but when we walk out. How we live on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Not just how we live here. And so it's a renewed way of thinking. I have to think different. It's not about me. It's about Him. Thirdly, yielding bodies living for him. I've yielded my body for him. I've laid down my life for him. I've given my life to him to serve him, to love him, to honor him, to obey him. And so here's the deal. It's spiritual. It's a heart issue. Either my heart is in tune to know and love God and to be used by him to glorify his name, or it's not. It's a heart issue. And so verse 2, when he's in verse 2, he's warning us subtly of the danger of legalistic conformity. Well, I I stay in step with this, and I stay in step with that. I I mean, I remember this guy that I met one day in another state. I won't name the state or the circumstances, but I met this guy, and he he said, I'd like to invite you to my church. I said, good. Tell me about your church. He said, well, we're, we're King James Schofield, premillennial. We are women don't wear pants. So women do not speak in church. And he named about 27 characteristics. He said, if you can meet those standards, you're welcome to come. And I said, well, brother, I don't think Jesus could come to your church. In fact, I think the people in your church don't know Jesus. What? I said, you put rules down that are nowhere in God's word. They're nowhere in God's word. I said, do you think Paul used the King James Schofield? Well, we use the the Bible that Paul used. I said, well, good. Let's get the Greek New Testament out. Let's go. Let's go for a ride. You see, he's not talking about conformity to legalism. He's talking about spiritual transformation. I love the way Linsky talks about this. Linsky says, this is constant metamorphosis. Continual metamorphosis, continual transformation. In other words, I didn't get saved and I stopped. I got saved and as long as God gives me breath, I'm growing more and more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I'm less and less like my old self and more and more like Jesus. It's a constant transformation. Can I just look at the person next to you and say, you have not arrived Now, say it back to them. (laughs) We have not arrived, folks. The only way we're going to get to where we need to be is when we die and get to heaven. And then we won't have this body of sin anymore. But until that day, we have not arrived, and there needs to be a constant dying. There needs to be a constant laying of ourselves on the altar to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Here's the battle. The battle for kingdom living is first and foremost in the mind. You see, sin appeals to the senses. What I 
feel, what I want. I mean, you go back to the Garden of Eden. The tree was good for food. It was pleasing to the eyes. It was be, to be desired. John talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Sin appeals to the senses. Hey, why do people get addicted to pornography? Why do people lust in their hearts? I tell you why, because sin appeals to the senses. Can I tell you, there's nothing sexy about sanctification. But it is essential. So if sin appeals to the senses, sanctification begins in the renewing of the mind. We have to renew our minds, change the way we think. And when we change the way we think, we change the way we live. That you may prove what the will of God is. In other words, disposition determines direction. Disposition determines direction. Where I go, what I do, what I watch, who I listen to, the stories that I tell, the way that I act is all determined by the fact that my mind has been renewed. Not because I try harder to do better. Not because I turn over a new leaf, but because in the process of God sanctifying me and making me more like Jesus, I realize that when my disposition changes, my direction changes. Secondly, it's impact on relationships. Now, if you look at Romans 12, 3 through 13, 17, you see three arenas which this operates, this full surrender operates. In the church, we are to be good family members. We're to be good family members. Now, I don't need any testimonies. How many of you have a family member that's not a good family member? You know, just, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you go and it's family reunion and everybody's pitching in and they're just sitting in a chair burping and picking their nose. I mean, they, they're worthless. I mean, just throw them off into a ditch and you won't miss them. Can't have church members like that. In the church, when there's unity and when we are surrendered to God, everybody is seeking to be the kind of family member that they want everybody else to be. So we're good family members. We carry our weight. We do our part. We pray for one another. We encourage one another. We spur one another on to good works. We love one another. We forgive one another. We're the kind of family member we want other people to be. Secondly, in the city, we're to be good neighbors. Second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. We're to be good neighbors. Now, every one of us have griped about some neighbor doing something, haven't we? Why do they keep parking in front of my house? Why do they stack their limbs out of their yard at the edge of my driveway? We all complain, music's too loud, door needs painting. I mean, we've complained, but we're, if we're going to be in the world, we need to be good neighbors. Amen. Listen, if your neighbors don't know you love God, probably nobody else does. We're to be good neighbors. And then in the nation, we're to be good citizens. We're to be good citizens. We are fast approaching a time in America when you don't even know if anybody wants to be a good citizen anymore. 
We're to pray for those in authority. Paul is speaking from his apostolic authority, and he expects an application to daily living. Starting in verses 3 through 8, uh, he starts talking about the way to know somebody is living out their faith. Verse 3, I love the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases this. Don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or of your own importance. This is a proper estimate of self through the lens of the cross. We don't cherish exaggerated ideas of ourselves for our own importance. We don't live for ourselves. We live with a renewed mind, with the right view of self. And what Paul is doing is, as you heard in the scripture a few moments ago, in verses 3 through 8, he's saying, here's how you know that you're walking the faith. How you respond and act and react to the diversity of gifts and personalities and backgrounds in the church. How do you react to people that are different than you? I mean, nobody in the world has the same fingerprint. Every, every person has a unique fingerprint. Why do we expect everybody to be like us? You know, if everybody's like me, the world would be a better place. No, the world would all hate each other. Everybody doesn't have to be like you. Everybody doesn't have to look like you, have the same background as you. And Paul says, if you want to know what the church functioning properly looks like, what a life of surrender looks like, it's when the gifts are working and the personalities are working and the backgrounds are working and everybody's coming together for something bigger than themselves. And so here's, he's talking about this grace and faith that we can differ, but it doesn't divide us. Now, everybody in this room is different from you, and you should thank God for that. Everybody's different from you. And it is in that diversity that we find our uniqueness, and we find the evidence of the gospel that changes lives so that people with different gifts and different talents and different backgrounds and different personalities can come together in one place and be a body, be a family. So, whatever I see in you and whatever you see in me, if it's good, that's the grace of God. It's not because I won some award in my high school annual. That's the grace of God. If the gifts are functioning in my life that God has placed within me, that's the grace of God. If I'm serving the way that I'm supposed to be serving, it's not so I get a button. That's the grace of God. I'm just responding to the grace of God that has been extended to me in such a way that I can't live for myself. I have to live for other people. I have to serve other people. We're all recipients of grace. So in verse 3, he talks about God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In verse 6, according to the proportion of his faith. And so our faith is not built on our feelings. Our faith is built on the Word of God. Saving faith leads to serving faith. I don't serve because I feel like it. I serve because God's told me to serve. I don't do what God's commanded me to do just when I feel like it. I do it whether I feel like it or not. Let me ask you, how would, how would what we do in church work at work? You, you show up at P&G tomorrow and say, you know, 
I just don't feel like working today. I think I'm just going to sit and watch everybody else work today. How long are you going to get a paycheck with that attitude? But we want every blessing of God while we live on our feelings and not by faith. We want God to bless us, and we want God to answer our prayers, and we want God to meet our needs. And all the while we're saying, you know, I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like doing this. I don't feel like doing that. I need a little break. I don't feel like this. I, don't feel, I can't find one word in the Bible that says I'm supposed to act or live according to my feelings. Nobody that was ever a martyr felt like being martyred. How do we live today? Do we live by faith or do we live by feelings? Paul says we behave in certain ways, and so in verses 6 through 8, he starts giving this series of examples of gifts and then of how we're supposed to act. I, I love this quote by Bonhoeffer. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. Our community consists of what Christ has done to both of us. And he's extended grace to all of us. So look, let me just comment quickly as I go through uh, verse 7. If service in his serving, be like Jesus when you serve. Be, be like Jesus when you serve. Or he who teaches in his teaching, expound truth. If you're a teacher, not your opinion, not the current wind of the times, teach truth. Verse 8, or he who exhorts, in his exhortation, encourage the saints, exhort people, challenge people, stretch people to step up to what God wants them to do. He who gives with liberality. Have a personal investment in the kingdom. Don't expect to ride in somebody else's car for free. He who leads with diligence, consistency. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And then in verse at nine, he begins a new section on relationships, and the key is all of what he says in verse nine. Let love be without hypocrisy. This is a cornerstone. It's the first fruit of the Spirit. In fact, the, the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians is really one fruit, love, and it has all these different flavors. Kindness, peace, joy, self-control. Different flavors, one fruit, love. They'll know that you're Christians by the fact that you love one another. Jesus said, love one another. Love is the guiding force, the agape love that God has shown us, we show to other people. So what does love look like? If you're looking for a church that has love, what does that look like? If you're looking for a family that has love, what does that look like? If you're looking for what you and I need to be individually, what does that look like? Well, let's just start reading. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, I like what one guy said, don't be a slacker. Not lagging behind in diligence. I used to be diligent, I'm just not diligent anymore. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. 
persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. One last word. Hospitality is in the family of words from which we would also get our word hospital. In other words, the church is a hospital for people in need. It is not a trophy case of people that have it all together. It's a hospital for people in need. That means that any person who has a need or a care or a worry or a fear ought to find in this family a place of hope. They ought to find in us the love of Jesus. They ought to see in us second mile saints. They ought to be able to say of us, they don't just talk about Jesus. They live Jesus in this world. Would you pray with me, please? If you are here today and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you in just a moment when we stand to get up from where you are, whether you're in the front or the back, in the middle of a road, doesn't matter, to get up from where you are and to come and find one of the men that will be here and say, I need to trust Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior today. Listen, if you don't know Christ, you're unrighteous. And your, your good works, your good deeds mean nothing to God. They will not get you into heaven. The only thing that will get you into heaven is giving your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, admitting that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, that you cannot save yourself, you can't fix yourself. You need a God who came down in the form of His Son and gave His life on a cross and died for your sin and was resurrected from the grave so that you would have life in Christ. If you need to do that today, then then I'm going to ask you, just come just like you are. We're not asking you to clean up before you can get saved. Just bring your baggage to Jesus. Bring your sin to Jesus. Bring your burdens to Jesus. Bring your anger, your hurt to Jesus today. And then for those of you that know Christ, this altar is open. It is an altar where we could kneel before God and say, God, I am coming to the altar as a living sacrifice. I want my life to be holy and acceptable unto God, which is reasonable for me to do in light of what Christ has done for me. I don't want to be conformed to this world, but I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. So maybe today is a time to come to the altar, not so you can crawl off before you get into the parking lot, but so that you can say, God, today, in this moment, I am giving myself to you completely. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to stand. And the minute we stand, I'm going to ask you, if you're here to be saved today, and you need to be saved, and God has convicted you, or somebody has shared Christ with you this week out of this church family, 
then you come and respond to the invitation this morning. If you need to come to this altar, you come. Father, in the name of Jesus, save the lost and cause the saved to hunger for sanctification. In Jesus' name, as we're standing, you step out and you come right now.